Our friends are going to be reading from the scriptures uh, in anticipation of the sermon. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 104 together. Please turn there in, the, if you're, in your Bibles. If you're using the Blue Pew Bibles, it's on page 486. We're going to be reading through the, uh, the, the full psalm together. Yeah. Uh, and let, let's, let's, let's try to live uh, in answer to that prayer that Mel just prayed, that we'd be coming to God's word with teachable hearts uh, as we prepare to hear from God. Psalm 104. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers and flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravens. He flows, it flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, and the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, and the stork has its home in the unipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey, they seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away, they return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor, until evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is a sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you form, to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. And when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust." When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners van vanish from the earth and their wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I uh, hope you all had a lovely Christmas and are enjoying a bit of a break, a bit of time off. Let's pray as we come to God's word now. 
Um, Father God, we thank you for uh, this part of your word and the reminder of uh, the beauty of your creation and how you hold it in your hands that are big, big enough to hold the world in the palm of your hands. But your hands are also open uh, because you are a generous God. Father, we pray that you would speak to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, a photo of Benito Mussolini, Il Duce. Sorry for butchering uh, the Italian, for anyone who speaks Italian. Uh, Il Duce means the leader. Uh, he was an Italian dictator from the, in the 1930s and 1940s. Um, Mussolini might not have been the most successful dictator uh, compared with people like Hitler or Stalin, but people who study dictatorships will tell you that he was the one who wrote the textbook on Propaganda for Dictators 101. If you're a budding dictator, you want to know how to become a dictator, you need to study Mussolini. He perfected the idea of creating the myth that the dictator is all-powerful, uh, all-seeing, uh, even someone that is, is somehow everywhere, uh, able to see everything that goes on. Uh, he gave radios to every primary school in Italy at a time when radios were expensive and pretty rare so that his voice would be heard by every student in the country. Uh, and for the adults, those outside of schools, 800,000 loudspeakers were installed in every town square so that Mussolini's voice would blare across the whole country of Italy. He kept the light of his office burning day and night to create the illusion that he never slept. He was all-seeing, all-knowing, always awake and in control. There was no escaping Il Duce, the leader. He was everywhere. Even people's bathrooms, they couldn't get away from him because his, his face would look up, the, from, uh, look up on them from every cake of soap. Mussolini and every dictator after him tried to create the, the myth, that, that, that iron hand that you see in the photo, that, that crushed people into submission, were also big hands that were everywhere and all-knowing. Psalm 144 is, uh, we also hear about someone with big hands. But unlike Mussolini, his power is real. He doesn't have to manufacture a myth. God's hands are so big that he holds the whole world in his palms. He puts everything in its proper place. He keeps things just the way that they were designed to be. But unlike a dictator who has to crush opposition with an iron fist and a jackboot, God is a king who has open hands. He has he, he, he is generous and he provides abundantly for his creation. Psalm 104 is a song of praise to this God who orders and rules over his creation with open and generous hands. We're going to look at four main points which you can see in your bulletin. Uh, please keep your Bible open because we'll be, we'll be uh, referring to that. Uh, and we'll be looking at those four points. The four points are number one, he is king who looks over all he has made like a warrior riding the chariot on the wind. Number two, he made everything in its proper place 
Three, he is an open-handed God who provides for his creation. And the fourth point, the proper response for us, his creatures, is to praise our creator. So let's jump straight into it. Uh, Starting off in our first point, the king who rides the wind. In verses 1 to 4, starts off with a call to praise. Praise God as the king over his creation who watches over everything and rides the heavens on a chariot on the wind. He is clothed with splendour and majesty. Look at verse 1 with me. Praise the Lord my soul, Lord my God, you are very great, you are clothed with with splendour and majesty. Then verse 2, the Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And verse 3, he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the cloud his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. Light, the heavens in place, the waters put in their place. If you're familiar with the very first words of the Bible in Genesis 1, you'll see echoes of that here in Psalm Psalm 104. Because in Genesis 1, God is the one who put the heavens in their place as well. And now he rides the wind on the clouds and rules over that creation that he made in Genesis 1. There's also an interesting little thing that the author does with the language in these verses. Look at the end of verses 3 and 4 with me. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messages flames of fire his servants the word for wind in hebrew can also mean spirit and breath as well in genesis 1 we are told that the spirit of god hovered over the waters when god created the heavens and the earth but here god rides on the wings of the wind and i think the author has deliberately has a double meaning in mind that 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 the wind can also mean the spirit. The same spirit that that was with God when he created the earth is still with God as he rules over the heavens. The author goes on in the next section to start to paint a picture of what sort of king God is like in verses 5 to 9. He is a king who puts everything in its proper place. He made things right so they stay put. Look at verse 5 with me. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. Now, I don't know what your experience is with DIY, with putting things together. Um, I have a troubled experience with DIY. My track record is pretty ordinary. I hate those IKEA beds and cupboards that you've got to assemble yourself. Firstly, I can't understand the instructions. So after I throw those out... I try to put it together and inevitably there's, there's, there's a screw, there's something vital that I, I've missed that I haven't put in. Well, eventually I get it together and no matter how carefully I screw everything in, the beds I put together always make you feel like you're at sea. You know, they've got a, a generous wobble to them every time you lie on them. But God's work's not like that. What God puts together is firm, it's secure. It stays just where where he wants it to be. 
And he has also made the waters stay where they're supposed to be. Have a look at verses 6, following with me. The waters stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, verse 7, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Verse 8, they flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned them. Verse 9, you set a boundary that they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Now again, if you're familiar with the story, you may hear the words of the creation story here. Genesis 1, the waters covered the earth, but then God put the waters in their place. And he separated the dry land from the water. He kept them separate so that the sea stays where it's meant to stay. We lose the significance of that as modern people. We don't have the same fear of the sea. But if you were a Jew in ancient Israel, water in any big amounts in lakes or seas was something to be feared because it was a symbol of chaos and death, darkness and evil. But God is able to control it. He puts it in its place and he makes sure that it stays there. That's a powerful picture of God having big hands, that he is in control, that he is able to put the powers of chaos in their place. Further on in the psalm, there's another description of the sea. Jump down with me to verse 25. Verse 25, there is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. Here we have the sea, instead of being a place to be feared, a place of chaos and darkness, it's a place of blessing. It's teeming with life. Creatures beyond number. And again, that's another picture from Genesis 1 and 2, where God blessed the creation by making life and making it in abundance. And notice that it's also useful to humans. Ships go to and fro on the sea. And then there's a very interesting addition uh, at the end of that uh, in verse 26. Leviathan is also in the sea, which you formed to frolic there. In the Jewish world, Leviathan is a sea monster who represented chaos and evil. We're told in the book of Isaiah that in the day of the Lord, when God comes to put all things right in the future, Isaiah 27 from verse 1 says this, In that day the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding servant, Leviathan, the coiling servant. He will slay the monster of the sea. God will slay Leviathan, meaning that the forces of evil in the day of the Lord will be dealt with once and for all. But here in Psalm 104, we have a very different picture of Leviathan. Leviathan is created by God to play in the water. What are we to make of that? Well, the point is that the sea and Le Le Leviathan are all under God's control. 
He has them all in his hands. They are no longer things to fear because God's big hands are able to keep them in check. Exactly where he wants them. Leviathan is there in the sea, but he's splashing and playing around while the ships go to and fro, unhindered. God has turned the sea from being a place of chaos to something useful, a place of blessing. Now, as I said, we may not be worried about Leviathan or the sea, um, but still, this is an enormously comforting word to us. Why? Because it tells us that God's big hands are big enough to deal with the things that we are afraid of as well. Perhaps you're worried about getting through uni. Or maybe work is particularly stressful. Maybe you have a boss who's demanding and hard to deal with. Perhaps you feel like you just can't please him or her. Perhaps things are really hard at home. With your parents, with your kids. Psalm 104 reminds us that yes, there are things in life that the sea, like the sea that we are afraid of and that make us worried things we can't control, but the God whose hands are big enough to deal with Leviathan and keep the sea in its place is also big enough to deal with our problems. He is in control. So Psalm 104 tells us that God is in control over the whole world. He has big hands that keeps everything in its proper place. But as well as that, he is also a generous God who has open hands. And that's our third point. In the section following the description of the sea being put in its place, the author talks about a different kind of water. Water that brings life to living things. Have a look with me at verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field, The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. Verse 13. As we just said, he waters the mountains with rain. Notice that in these verses, God is providing for places far away. From human habitation. The mountaintops where it's too steep to build houses or grow crops. The wild country where the wild donkeys roam. We see the same idea later on. God looking after the places and creatures far from the world of human beings. Look at verse 18. Again, God sends rain to the mountains that belong to the wild goats. Verse 21. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The picture here is God caring for the whole of creation. The animals that live way up in the mountains that human eyes can never see, even the animals that are hostile to the world of human beings, lions, predators, God cares for them and they are precious to him. The world of nature is valuable in God's eyes for its own sake, not just for the way it provides for human beings. Human beings have a pretty dismal track record 
of looking after the environment. We've considered the world to be there, to be plundered and exploited at our convenience with not much regard for the consequences. And now we're reaping what we've sown, aren't we? Climate change, drought, bushfires. God provides for the places that are beyond the human world, the the, the place of human habitation. But at the same time, he also looks after us, doesn't he? He also looks after the the, the world of human domestication. Look at verse 14. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food for the earth. Verse 15, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, bread that sustains their hearts. God gives us the food we need. He provides for cattle and livestock so that we in turn can use them for food. He gives us good soil and water for our crops to grow. He gives us everything we need to live. But it doesn't end there. We could survive on bread and water. We could get by quite, quite easily. But God gives us wine as well. And oil to refresh us. Or if you don't drink wine, you might substitute that for ginger beer or coke or, or something that you really, really enjoy. God gives us these things to make our hearts glad. God doesn't just want us to survive. He wants us to thrive. He wants us to enjoy life. Jesus says that our Father in heaven loves to give us good things. Isn't that nice to know? Life can be pretty hard, can't it? The medical experts tell us to reduce stress and chill and live a balanced life. But you and I know that sometimes that can be pretty much impossible. Trouble at home, sickness, pressure at work. There are times when life just seems to threaten to overwhelm us. But in the midst of that, God in his goodness gives us things, good things, to keep us going. A cup of coffee with a friend. A quiet night watching Netflix. Having a beer with a few friends over a barbecue. A day playing Xbox on the weekend. These things are gifts from God that we need to value and give thanks for. So God is open-handed and generous in the way that he provides for all of creation, from the remotest parts that we never set foot on to the everyday world of human beings. But there's another aspect of God's generous provision that we see in this psalm. God gives us times and seasons, rhythms of life. Look with me at verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the field or the forest prowl. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go to their work, to their labour until evening. God gives us night and day, summer and winter. 
They are God's gracious provision to give us the rhythms of life that we need. Work and then rest. Go but then stop. That's how God designed us. We enjoy the sun and its light and warmth to get things done. But when we get tired at the end of the, end of the day, he provides night time so we can rest, have time with family, friends, put our feet up. Just as we no longer feel like we can handle day after day of the heat of summer, it starts to cool down and autumn comes. Then winter, and then as winter drags on and we get sick of being cold, the flowers come out and we start to smell the sense of springtime. As human beings, we need rhythm and change, light and dark, hot and cold, work and rest. It's all part of God's open-handed generosity towards us. But there is another type of season that God gives us, and it's one that we don't often think of as a blessing. Have a look at verse 28. This is talking about God giving food to his creatures. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. So that's something that we've already seen in Psalm 104. But then he goes on in the next verse, 28. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die. And return to the dust. There are times, seasons, when God hides his face from his creation. Ultimately, there comes a time when every creature, every one of us, when life comes to an end, God takes away our breath. And here we see the same word as at the beginning of the psalm, the word describing God riding in the wind, remember, that can also mean spirit. So here the God who gives life and works through his spirit also takes away breath or spirit of his creatures. But God can also turn his face away without it leading to death. Sometimes we can experience that. Sometimes we can be on the receiving end of his discipline. There are times when God deliberately plays hard to get because we need, we've been wandering away from him and we need a wake-up call. That happened time and time to Israel in her history. It became a depressingly familiar cycle of Israel sinning and wandering away from God. So God sends a calamity, a disaster or her enemies to beat up on Israel to turn her back to God so that she would repent and cry out to God for deliverance. I wonder if you're currently feeling like God has turned away and hidden from you. If that's you, it's actually God being merciful to you. Because he wants us to be in a place where we cry out to him. When he turns his face away, but we know that we are desperate for him to shine his face on us once again. To turn to him, to know that we need him. Even though it may not feel like it, God turning his face away from us can actually be part of him graciously providing for us. Giving us what we need at the time to cause us to turn to him in trust and praise. And that brings us to our last point. 
Praise is the proper response to God's big hands, God's open hands. Have a look with me at verse 33. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. 34. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. The author understood that the only way he could respond to who God is, how he holds the whole creation in his two big hands, and he opens those hands generously to provide for his creation, to give us everything that we need. The only proper response to that is praise. To know that all we can do as his creatures is to open our hands and receive what he gives us. To trust that he is in control. To know that we are dependent on him for our every breath. So the author's prayer in verse 34 is that his meditation, his thoughts and his attitudes will be pleasing to God. In other words, that he responds in the right way to God. With thankfulness, giving God his due as creator and king. Well, then we come to the last verse of the, of the, of the psalm, verse 35, and that seems a bit clunky and out of place. Have a look at verse 35 with me. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Why is he suddenly out of nowhere going from talking about praising God to sinners, wanting sinners to be wiped out from the earth? It's not all that obvious, but what I think is going on here is that the author is drawing a contrast between his attitude of praise in verse 34 and the opposite attitude in verse 35, which is refusing to praise God. So he's saying, may my attitude be pleased, pleasing to God as I rejoice in him, but may those who refuse to give God his due praise vanish from the face of the earth. Because, you see, the only acceptable response to God's big hands and his open hands as our creator and king is to be thankful and praise him. And so the last word of Psalm 104 is to call us as human beings to all respond in that way. To recognise God as king, as our creator, on whom we are dependent for our, every, for our very breath. To do anything else in the light of all that he has given us would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? Now, as, as I've prepared this sermon, I've had a nagging sense that something's not quite right. And perhaps you've picked, it up, picked up on it too. You see, we've heard today about God's abundant provision, springs of water, rain for the crops, the earth satisfied as the heavens open to bring life. But that doesn't quite ring true for Australia coming to the end of 2019, does it? I looked out of the window this morning and uh, it wasn't as bad as it has been, but I looked up, looked up to see an orange sun so, um, reflecting the, the smoke 
from the bushfires that, that is in the air. The worst drought in living memory. Somehow the tap's been turned off. Devastating bushfires that aren't likely to go out until there's significant rain. And there's not even any of that forecast in the foreseeable future. So have God's open hands somehow closed up? What's gone wrong? I don't think we can fully answer that question. We're not God. We don't have special access to his mind. We can't guess why God allows seasons of hardship like this. We, don't, we do know that the weather here in Australia is a fickle, unpredictable thing. Is it just natural? Is there a spiritual reason behind it? We're not given the answer to those questions. But I think there are at least two things we can know. There are two ways that we ought to respond as God's people. And the first one, the evidence seems pretty irrefutable that climate change is at least partly responsible for the changing weather. Without getting into the politics of it, I'm not going to start a debate about that. But it's pretty clear that we have not respected and we have not preserved our environment the way we should. We've seen from Psalm 104 that God treasures the whole of his creation. He values even the parts that we as human beings have treated as worthless throughout history. And it seems to me that if we take this psalm seriously as God's people, we need to be concerned for our world. We need to do more as God's people. We can't just embrace the short-sighted attitude of, of our culture, exploiting creation with no regard to the future. So that's one response. The second one. It can be easy to just become depressed and uh, worried about what's going on, can't it? As we see the fires burning day after day. To feel like things are spinning out of control. But whatever the cause of the drought and the fires around us, there are two things certain in all this. One is that God is still in control. That his hands are big enough to take care of us even when the fires continue to burn out of control. And because of that, the second certain thing is that God wants us to respond to him by turning to him. To cry out to him in our need. You are God and we are not. We constantly need to remind ourselves of that. To praise him as the one who provides. The one who gives breath and life. To turn to him and to cry out to him in our need. To sing to the Lord. To sing praise to him no matter what our circumstances. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And let's think about praising God. Giving him our due as our creator as we sing to him love for us was when his own son opened his hands for us to have cruel nails driven through them 
so that he could die for us and pay the ultimate price for our refusal to give praise to our creator but that willingness to go to the cross we know or by that willingness we know that we have a god with big hands and those hands are open despite the appearance of circumstance and our only response to that is to praise him. Amen.